You're listening to Potato Candy Network. Hello and welcome back to Blank Monster. As always, I am your host, Marie. Here on Blank Monster, I present to you two or three monsters from the Monster Manual that I think are underused or overused and need a couple of new ideas. We're still working our way through the 5th edition Monster Manual, and we are currently on the letter M. There were some really fun ones in this chapter. I had to convince myself not to cover Mimic, even though I really wanted to, or Mind Flares. So I found three other monsters that I think are really unique. Also a little bit tropey, but the lore behind them I think makes them a lot more versatile than they get credit for. So jumping into it, our first monster is the Medusa. The Medusa presented in the 5th edition Monster Manual is pretty typical of what you would expect. Female with snake hair turns people stone by looking at them. They are described as people who have made sacrifices or deals to demon lords to gain physical beauty, restored youth, immortality, and the adoration of all who behold them. That is going to be a key factor. They are very vain and very obsessed with glamour, adoration, all of that. And after living as essentially a demigod for years... Their hair turns to serpents as the downside of the curse kicks in. They tend to live in sort of a quiet exile in what is the ruins of their past life, which when you consider they're supposed to be mortal, makes sense. In 5th edition lore, if you get caught in a Medusa's gaze, you are turned to stone if you fail to make saving throws, unless you have a Greater Restoration spell cast on you. Greater Restoration is going to be a 5th level spell, which... For those of you not familiar with that, that is going to be a very high level spell. And the soonest you're going to get that spell slot is ninth level. So you have to be halfway through your level up to even have access to the ability to just bring someone back from Medusa's gaze. Like I said, they live in the shadow ruins of their former home. um, Filled with a lot of hiding places because obviously a lot of destroyed pieces to hide behind and in. There are no mirrors typically because they destroy those because they are not immune to their own gaze. So... A reflective surface will turn the Medusa into stone themselves. They don't often attack with their gaze, though, which I found interesting. They attack with a short sword or a longbow. They're very trained combatants. Or they can also attack with their snake hair, which has a reach of five feet. So their snakes are literally lashing out to get you. I want to switch gears very quickly because 5th edition is great, but the 4th edition version of Medusa's is fantastic, and I think it should be brought back. In 4th edition, female Medusas turn the victims to stone. And have snake hair. Male medusas do not. They do not have the snake hair. And instead of turning people stone, their gaze actually poisons the mind and body of victims, causing them to feel intense pain and go mad until they can come in and just destroy them with a sword. Not only that, but they actually poison arrows with their own saliva to do the same thing on a lesser scale. So you've got almost this idea of a kind of like a sub race. And it doesn't say exactly how you end up with them. There's no curse turning them into this. So you could have them be people who have been turned into Medusas who are sort of hiding among themselves. Maybe it could be an actual race that is ancient and just kind of has dwindled. Because of the nature of them in fourth edition, they will oftentimes live in small groups instead of just living alone. And they will rule over a populace as faux royals. Or could even be secret leader of an Assassin's Guild. So you have a lot of wiggle room with them in 4th edition. There's also a second way to restore victims. Well, a main way in 4th edition. You need to get the blood of a Medusa that was killed within the last 24 hours and apply it to the victim's mouth 
or lips if they're petrified, and that will restore them back. It doesn't say male or female, so I assume that's female only, um, but you could wiggle it either way if you wanted to. So fourth edition has a lot more just fun little details I think you can use for Medusa. Fifth edition is the standard lore. Fourth edition is way more fun. Going off of that into our scenarios. The first is you have a Medusa assassin that is stalking your party or an NPC with the party. If you have an absent player, this is actually a really good option because you can have that player become petrified, meaning you don't have to worry about playing their character for them. They can just be a stone statue being dragged along. If you want to play with the 4 variant of the male Medusa, you can have them being kind of insane a little bit or just almost not comatose, but just kind of out of it so they really can't do anything. And your party basically just has to get to safety or figure out how to get the Medusa off their back, which is going to be tricky. Medusas are not very high-level monsters. They are a challenge rating of 6, which is going to be higher than first-level party can deal with. But once you get the level such as level 9, you're not looking at much of a challenge. They could take on Medusa if they chose to. They could also just make it to safety. The second scenario option is you have a matron of a city who hides her aged face behind a veil. I wonder why. And she is hosting a ball for other dignitaries to come and visit. And the main feature of her city that she's very proud of is a hedge maze filled with very remarkable lifelike statues. This is more of a seed than a prompt, I realize, but you could have your party going and try to find someone that they know has been turned to stone and this is a cover. Maybe they're dignitaries who have no idea this is a Medusa and one of them is potentially going to be a victim. There's a lot of little things you can do with that and it could even just be an aside of you get to explore around and she won't do anything to you as long as you keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you could easily make a ally out of a Medusa or an enemy. Which one do you want? The third scenario is you have a town that is nearby some ruins from what used to be a very prosperous city, empire, whatever you want it to be based upon the scale of your story. There have been several attacks on local guards that have left them seemingly in a state of madness. And the town leader is sending you out to investigate. He believes there's something evil lurking in these old ruins. What's going on is the Matron Medusa leading the small group is sending male archers to poison guards preparation for an attack for a vengeance that she believes happened to her. Whether it's fair or not, you can kind of decide based upon the reasons you need her to be antagonistic towards the town. It could be valid reason from thousands of years ago that don't really matter anymore. It could have been 50 years ago, and now she's just getting around to getting to them. But either way, you have a group of Medusas that are becoming into attack if you don't do anything to stop them. So, like I said, Medusa is really fun, and I think the 4E lore adds a lot of little elements to it, because I can very easily see an Assassin's Guild having a mysterious leader behind a mask. No one knows what they look like. You can't see their eyes, identify them, and it's Medusa this entire time. Such an easy throw-in to add to it, and you could do so much with that. Medusa bounty hunters, you could have them turn people stone, bring them in. It, there's so many options with that. Moving on to our next creature, we have the Modrons. Now, Modrons are going to be the drones. If you've seen any of the little clockwork creatures from D&D Monster Manuals, that's what we're looking at. They are beings that live on the plane of Mechanus, and they exist in a perfect clockwork routine and perfect order. They are under the leadership of Primus, and their mission is simply to increase order in the multiverse. 
There's a hierarchy set up. There's a network set up. They communicate with one rank above or below only. Otherwise, it is too simple or complex to understand. There are several different drones under this category for Modrons. We have Monodrones, which is a circle person. Duodrone, which is two rectangle things. Tridrone, which looks like upside down pyramid with legs. Quadrone, which is a cube with legs and wings. And then Pentadrone, which looks like a weird Venus flytrap with faces on all of its leaves. Obviously, you have one side, two side, three side, four side, five side, and so on. These are the base ranks. In past editions, you actually have a hierarch ranks that are above. And there are even numbers of how many you have of these. There are thousands and thousands of the monodrones, the base drones. They can do one thing and that's it. As you get higher, they can do more and more complex tasks and dictate things to those below them. When you get to the very top, you have the Secrundi. I think I'm saying that right. And they are basically under Primus themselves. There are only two of them. And as you go down, of course, you get more and more and more. But as you get those high levels, you get very few, and they basically control everything. But it's all within perfect working order. If a Modron is ever destroyed, it is not sent back anywhere. It's not disappeared completely. A new Modron is instantly promoted to replace it, taking on that Modron's form. So let's say you have a Tridrone that you're fighting for some reason, the Triangle guys. You destroy him. Instantly, a Duo Drone is now promoted to become a Tridone, taking the place of the destroyed drone instantly where you are. And then all the way down, you're having new drones promoted. And then a single Monodrone will be created to replace the empty slot that is now remaining. So these are not an easy fight, technically. They are an incredibly, incredibly low challenge rating of like a half. The Pentadrone gets up to challenge rating of two. So they are technically an easy fight, but they just kind of respawn. And it's not within 24 hours. No, it's instant. It's instant that this happens. So you could be fighting these things indefinitely if you really want to mess with your party. There is a variant in the 5th edition that is a rogue variant. Normally, Modrons carry out commands in absolute obedience with absence of morality ego. They are just basically computers is the simplest way to think of them. There's a computer program to do something and it does it. The rogue variants, either a defective unit comes out through decay or a chaotic force. And it begins acting against orders, doing things it's not supposed to, thinking the way it's not supposed to. And eventually it will be hunted down and destroyed, being replaced with a new unit that is not defective, so on and so forth. So there is the option of having a modron that is not just do XYZ and does XYZ, but it's going to be very rare and it's probably not going to last very long. So a couple of scenario options for these guys, because they are very fun. And if you throw in past editions of the higher ranks, you can do a lot more with them as well. Your party for the first scenario is going to be sent to Mechanus, which is the plane of order that all the Modrons are from. And you have been told to corrupt a Modron that is being created. Someone is going to do something that will destroy a Modron elsewhere. So the empty slot. New one will have to be created, and you need to corrupt it. Now, the reason why you don't even have to tell your party, you could decide as a DM it's being corrupted because the archdevil that is against Primus is just trying to mess with him. Simple as that. It could be someone's master plan of undermining what order is supposed to be in the universe and ultimately allowing chaos in a greater realm. There could be any number of things. You could be told to bring this 
Modron back to the material plane for study or to be a servant. And it just needs to be corrupted to do that. Literally any reason you want and you don't have to tell the party because regardless of what is told to the party, if they do succeed, they have an entire group mad at them and they have to get off the plane. So they might not survive because it does sound like a suicide quest. And even if they do, the repercussions could be as big or small as you want behind the screens. This would be a really good option for a small intro quest. I think especially for a new party and then later on if you need kind of like a side story to fill in time for a campaign. Go back to, so you remember that time you went to the realm of Primus and messed with a, a drone? Yeah, that guy's come back to haunt you now. <laughs> you could easily mess with him that way. It'd be super simple. Our second option, we are going to send the party to talk to one of the top drones, the Secrundi or at least one of the top four tiers minimum, right? We're not talking to the low ranks here. And you're going to try to convince this drone to do something. Remember, these things are all about order, control, not chaos in any sense. So you will have to use pure logic to convince it to do something. And if that fails, I guess the option the party will probably go with is destroy the unit and talk to the guy who just got replaced with him. That's probably what they'll be using. But you'll be trying to get them to be on your side with something. Make it big enough to justify a high rank. And then all of those commands that trickle down will ultimately fulfill that plan. This is where you want a little bit bigger of a scheme going into it. Maybe your party is trying to change how order works somewhere. Maybe they really want something and they need the Modrons to be a part of it in some abstract way. Really kind of make them think, how do we convince this robot that what we want is good and order and justifiable to them that it'll continue all the way down. So much more of social counter in theory with the Modrons. And the last one is going to actually be back on the material plane. You have a drone, probably a duo or tri-drone, I would say just to make sure you're not the base base levels with the little circle guys. And it is leading your part in a mission to restore order somewhere. If you have a paladin of order in your party, great person to have tied to this. If you have a warlock that maybe could have made a deal with the Primus or a hierarch drone at one of the higher ranks, always an option there. Could also just be, hey, you guys seem not super chaotic if your party isn't <laughs> and needs help. This is, again, where you can make this task as big or as small as you want to. I wrote down changing a light bulb because immediately my brain was thinking of paranoia, one of the scenarios in it. But they aren't going to know the outcome of the task. Again, they're going in there. They're supposed to help this tri-drone restore order somewhere. It could seem super inconsequential. But you could explain later on, yeah, because you didn't complete this in the right way, you started a war, right? Just think about domino effect. You know, make sure you stress that the drone is very tense about this, very worried about this, very much needs to get this done. The drone understands it's important, but not why. And your party needs to help. So that is going to be it for the Modrons. Again, they're very fun. A lot of cool things you can do with them. And they're fun just little robot guys that just can't be messed with in normal circumstances. The last one, we are going back a little bit to tropes, but there are some fun things you can do with it. We are looking at the mummy. <laughs> and yes, I know mummies ironically have not been done to death in D&D, but they have been done a lot. Mummies, of course, a burial ritual is performed on a body that prevents it from rotting. 
And Dean Delore is also imbued with necromatic magic. Necromantic magic, sorry. And it is set to reanimate in response to conditions set by the ritual. It could be someone is evading temple, someone's stolen relics, someone's attacking me, whatever the person doing the ritual wants it to be. You can have any individual become the mummy. It could be an individual who's displeased the high priest or pharaoh. It could also just be a slave that's been set to be a tomb guard for a higher purpose than their life before. Whatever the person doing this kind of sides and whoever's on hand. One thing I do want to stress is a mummy can be literally any humanoid. There is a centaur mummy on D&D Beyond for a reason. And in 4th edition, you also have giant mummies as a stat block option. So pretty much any creature that could be there, you can mummify. The magic that brings back a mummy prevents it from truly dying. If you destroy it, it just comes back later on. The only way to put it to rest, to truly put it to rest, is undo what you've done. You can technically kill it with fire. But it's going to be tricky if you're not high enough levels. So if you can put back the statue, if you can leave the grounds, it'll stop attacking. This is real tricky, though, if it is, I'm going to kill someone because you can't really undo that option at low levels. The biggest issue with mummies in 5th edition is mummy rot. And this goes back several editions as well. Mummy rot literally causes the victim's body to rot from the outside or from the inside out, leaving nothing but dust. And it can happen very rapidly. Within 24 hours, you could be dust if you don't have enough rolls and you don't get treatment. And that can just happen from it making an attack, you failing a dice roll, you've got 24 hours to live, bud. And you aren't just healing that up. You lose hit points the longer you have it. So mummy rot is the main issue mummies have any kind of threat within D&D. They're not especially high challenge rating unless you have a mummy lord, which is a specific type of mummy. These mummies actually remember who they were in life. They retain all their memories, all their knowledge, all their magic. And they also have a higher resilience than standard mummy does. The only way to kill them is to destroy the heart that was removed and preserved separately with fire, specifically. And I love this fact about it. If you can find the heart, stab it, nothing happens. You have to kill the heart with fire. Otherwise, the mummy lord will rise 24 hours later. And the Mummy Lord also gets layer effects and regional effects. It controls all undead in its area. So in its layer, the undead can actually pinpoint living creatures, specifically living creatures. And if you try to cast a spell fourth level or higher, you might fail and you experience intense pain. If you are within the region of the mummy, which is usually three to six miles, generally speaking, food and water is basically destroyed food begins to mold water evaporates divination spells have an increased chance of being unreliable and any treasure you take curses you immediately so you really don't want to mess with them and the fourth edition mummies tend to have a lot of yanti temples that they guard um, because of the deities here that the yanti worship so as much as we're thinking deserts mummies right the mummy you could also be in a jungle. Just because you're not rotting doesn't mean you're not going to be slightly moldy by the time you wake up. So a couple of scenario options for these guys. The first actually plays on a very, very small tidbit about the mummy. forgot to mention that, actually. Mummies can talk, standard mummies, but they don't usually because their main goal is to attack. So they can actually be used as unliving libraries, for lack of a better word. 
So you are sent to retrieve an ancient spell scroll, but you do not know that the spell is actually buried, so to speak, within the mummy itself. So it's not like there's a physical scroll. No, the mummy has the knowledge and you have to figure out how to get the talk to you to learn it. And it's waiting for someone who's a worthy heir before it will tell you. So if you go in and just completely destroy the body, the mummy's just going to attack you, right? So if you want that spell, you need to figure out how to get the talk to you. You can define exactly what is a worthy heir. Is it bloodline? Is it like an action based upon your party? But you're trying to get this mummy to talk to you. Destroying it won't do it. The second option is your party is escorting a descendant of a long dead king. There is a tomb that this person has found and they're going to go and claim a relic that is their birthright. You get there and the mummy lord wakes up because his relic's been claimed and he now wants revenge. He does not care who this descendant is. He wants it. It's his. So you now either need to return it to the mummy lord, hoping he doesn't come after you because he's a lot more powerful than Saturn mummies. He's not just going back to sleep. Or you need to escape or you need to out, out kill him. And... Mummy Lords are a challenge rating of a 15, which is halfway up the chart. They do not have a lot of hit points, but again, they're hard to kill because the only thing that really affects them is fire. And as I said before, if you think Yanti and you think jungles, it's hard to burn stuff that's wet. So that's a fun option if you really want to decide how worth it is it to keep A, this person alive, and B, get this relic. The third option is you have necromancers that have sort of taken over a, I say town, you could probably make it more of like a ruins of some kind even, and they've made it into a, air quotes, zoo. Basically, think of the Body Works exhibits, a lot of museums, but mummies. They have taken several different humanoid creatures, turned them into mummies, and set them up on display. It doesn't say in the Monster Manual exactly if you can control mummies, aside from wake up and kill people, I would say as a necromancer, if you're doing this ritual, you probably could, and it would not be hard to justify it and just say minor instructions, walk in a circle, right? Just to show off. The trigger to attack, though, for the mummies is if the necromancers are attacked or killed. You could set up a trigger word, or it could just be if the necromancers who are controlling these mummies die, the connection is broken, they go on a rampage, right? So your party's been told, go in there and kill the necromancers. Okay, this would trigger a mummy revolt, which would probably cause rampage in other areas. If your party is caught, they could also get out, right? Very feasible. Your party could also just take a bribe from the necromancers and say, hey, we were sent to kill you. Um, we're not, so you could pay us and we'll leave. For me, that is a very fun option to give your players that decide, you know, we don't really want to fight everything in this Jurassic mummy park. We just kind of want to walk away now. <laughs> Because once you walk in, you're also surrounded by mummies that, again, are hard to kill and being controlled by something. So you're going to be outnumbered. And unless your party is that high level or wants to be that sneaky, I think acting double agent could be a good option for that. So those are going to be our three monsters for this week. We have the Medusas, the Modrons, and the Mummies. Um, I loved all of these looking into them. Medusa the mummies especially. They are such well-known creatures and yet you don't really see them used that much. You know, we always talk about it. There's the blue Medusa, two blue, but Medusas themselves don't really appear all that much. Mummies are really fun. It's just basically a zombie, but doesn't smell. But let me know if there's anything else you want to do with them. 
what your favorite mummy encounter was if you've had one because I'd love to hear about them. I think they'd be really fun to throw into a game. And I will leave it there with you and see you later. Hello, Bob Spuds here on the scene once again reporting for Potato Candy Network. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing on your podcasting app of choice. If you have a scenario prompt you want us to use, send it to us on social networking with Instagram and Facebook at Potato Candy Network. And if you really liked us, consider supporting us on Patreon for bonus content monthly, such as behind-the-scenes sneak peeks, inspirations, and future episode previews. Check out our brother show, Dreadful Tales, for some taut tension full truly terrifying tales of terror. <laughs> Got that on the first try, you know. And finally, please leave us a review, as it helps your recommendations and helps others find the hard work we do here at Potato Candy Network. Oh, and friendly reminder, if someone asks you if you're a god, don't think of marshmallows. <laughs> Nobody likes that guy. <laughs>